Bob Ambrosi. Welcome to episode 42 of This Week in Legal Blogging, presented by LexBlog. LexBlog is home to the world's largest community of legal bloggers and is the industry-leading provider of professional blogs and turnkey digital publishing solutions to lawyers and the world's largest law firms for more than 17 years. Once again, this is Bob Ambrogi, publisher of the blog Law Sites, and I also have my own podcast called Law Next, focused on legal tech and innovation. And today on This Week in Legal Blogging, I am very happy to have uh, an old-time, a long-time friend, not an old-time friend, <laughs> I don't want to age you, David, uh, David Latt, one of the, uh, probably one of the best-known legal bloggers of all time, and uh the founder originally of an anonymously authored blog called Underneath Their Robes, and then as the founder of Above the Law, probably the most popular of all legal blogs. But as you you will hear today, David is uh, forsaking his friends in the blogging world in favor of a new medium in which to publish. We'll talk all about that with David. Um, But David, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Bob. It's uh, always great to speak with you. Always great to speak with you. Uh, although the la- one of the last times I spoke with you, you know, in, in some ways it was both great and not so great because uh, we talked uh, about fourteen months ago, I think yep. it was, when you were just just not long out of the hospital after really kind of a near death experience with COVID nineteen. Uh, how are you doing? How, how have you been doing since then? Much much better. Uh, even my voice, you can tell from our last conversation, has has really gone back to normal. I think I am for the most part, recovered. It took a while. It took several months after getting out of the hospital. I had a cough and shortness of breath that really lingered. But uh, at some point, a couple of months afterwards, they went away. And now the pulmonologist and the cardiologist say that things look pretty good. So knock on wood, I feel uh, I feel pretty much back to normal for the most part. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. Yeah, your voice was so weak at that point, I guess, yeah. from the intubation. <laughs> Yes, uh, and uh, and you look healthy, uh, and uh, and that's good. But uh, I guess kind of as as part of that, uh, you maybe because of being sick, because of uh, everything that's happened over the past year, you did a little bit of a soul searching, and and recently kind of took a turn in your own career and in how you're spending your time. You want to tell us about that? Yeah, I think that like a lot of us during the pandemic, uh, I learned a lot about myself and certainly my near-death experience with COVID also uh, educated me. Uh, At the time that I got sick in March of last year, I was mainly working as a legal recruiter. I was doing a little bit of writing on the side. Uh, I wrote every other week for Above the Law, for instance. Uh, But for the most part, I was mainly focused on recruiting. Yeah, you had left Above the Law, what, two years before that or so or something like that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, 2019 is sort of when I left Above the Law as an editor, uh, but I would just work as a columnist, uh, you know, like like many. I mean, you've you know been a columnist Above the Law, uh, so I was just writing a, as a columnist. Not I wasn't working as an editor. I wasn't involved in any content but my own, and I was mainly recruiting, uh, helping law firms and companies find talent. Uh, but I, what I realized during the pandemic was how much I missed the writing. I started writing about my COVID experience, as I talked about when we last spoke. Uh, chronicling what I was going through on social media. And then I wrote some pieces afterwards for the Washington Post and the LA Times and Slate and some other publications. And it just reminded me of how much 
I missed what we do as writers and journalists. And so uh, this spring, I decided, you know what, I think I'm going to move on from uh, recruiting and go back to full-time writing. And uh, I'm really grateful to my colleagues at Lateral Link, which was the recruiting firm I worked for. They were really great. Uh, but I think I just realized that it wasn't completely fulfilling me in the way that writing did. And so uh, in December of last, in December of 2020, I had started this publication called Original Jurisdiction, a newsletter slash blog, and we can talk about yeah. that format. Um, and I just sort of did it on a lark to sort of get back into writing, which I had missed so much. And then in April, I decided, you know what, I think I'm going to try and make a go of this and do it as a full-time thing. And so as of uh, the start of this month, May, uh, I'm no longer officially a recruiter and I am back to full-time writing. Well, and, and I, th I think uh, I'm sure a lot of our listeners know of you uh, and, and you are somebody who, you know, in, in many ways, much of your career was defined by blogging. Uh, you know, you started uh, underneath their robes way back when as an anonymous uh, uh, anonymous author when you were still assistant U.S. attorney in Chris Christie's office, I think, when he was the U.S. attorney, right? Yep. Uh, and, and, and then yep. you uh, were kind of... Uh, outed uh, in the New Yorker and went on to start Above the Law. So you were really identified with blogging uh, in, a, in a strong way and were probably one of the best known bloggers. You know, in some ways, there seems to be a little twist or irony in, in your resuming blogging and going to this new medium. So what was it about Substack that attracted you as opposed to just starting another blog? So in many ways, I do see it as another blog. Um, Substack is this platform that allows writers to take their writing and essentially turn them into newsletter blasts, which go out uh, to people by email. But all of those uh, posts, and I still call them posts, appear uh, on a website, uh, in my case, davidlatt.substack.com, uh, in reverse chronological order, uh, which is very much like a blog. Uh, so I think that's one difference with Substack. It lets you turn things into newsletters more easily. But I think the major difference is it allows you to monetize them uh, in a very easy way. Uh, when I first got into blogging, it wasn't really easy to charge readers a subscription fee. And if you wanted to make money, you had to use ads. And advertising could either be a little bit difficult in terms of uh, setting up the whole infrastructure for that. Or if you just used something like Google, you were getting a really small stream of revenue. So what Substack allows you to do is to monetize by charging your readers a small subscription fee per month. Uh, and that's essentially how it works. Uh, you charge your readers a few dollars a month or they can subscribe annually. Um, there are no ads. Uh, you, you can have ads if you want, uh, but that's not really the model. Substack takes 10% of the revenue you generate from the reader subscriptions and their payments processor Stripe takes another three percent or so, plus a transaction fee. So really, it's about fifteen percent of what you're is what you're giving up to them. But you keep the rest of the revenue. And there have been a number of high-profile bloggers uh, with much larger followings than mine who've, who are making a good living on it. So it's it's an interesting new model for blogging and journalism. Yeah, I mean, some of these bloggers are making in the millions of dollars. I don't know if you're up there yet, David. I I, I won't ask you exactly how much <laughs> nope. you're making, but, but I, I hope you get there. One of the things that you wrote about, I, I think it was in your introduction to the newsletter, was was the fact that um, your, your your past experience in blogging was partly that you end up kind of chasing the ads or chasing the hits that will drive the ads, and and you didn't want to have to be 
doing that anymore. Talk about that. How does that influence how you write or what you write about? So one of the things about an advertising-based model is it really is based on the page views. You charge the advertisers these CPMs or cost per mil, cost per thousand impressions. So the more page views you get, the more people who look at your website, refresh the page, et cetera, the more money you get. So as a result, a lot of advertising-based publications are essentially chasing these viral hits, that post that gets shared on Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn a gazillion times and gets so many people to visit your site because that's how you make money. And it really requires a huge amount of traffic for it to be sustainable. For Above the Law, for instance, they get around a million and a half unique visitors a month and you know several multiples of that in terms of page views. And that's what allows them to have a sizable staff and uh, you know do a lot of other things that they do. For me, I really wanted to kind of return almost to like the early days of blogging where it's really just you and the readers. And Substack lets me do that. I don't need a million and a half readers. I just need, I don't know, a couple thousand really uh, who are willing to pay a small amount uh, each month uh, to uh, essentially hear from me. And so it's, it's, a, it's a different model. And again, I don't need to write things that are going to go viral. I mean, sure, is it nice to go viral? Sure, because it helps you get more subscribers. But in the Substack model, it's not really about the hits. It's about putting up quality content. So I think that in some ways, I like the incentives better. Well, it's not about the hits, but isn't it about the readership? I mean, if you're doing this to make money and you're charging a subscription, then then doesn't kind of marketing or building out your your, uh, email list become part of the job that you're doing here? Yes. So Substack is not for everyone. Uh, You have to be somebody who doesn't mind the marketing and the promotion. So a lot of the writers who have left established publications to work for Substack are people who don't mind that. They don't mind essentially uh, being the digital version of someone standing on the sidewalk with a sandwich board saying, hey, check out my writing. Like that's kind of what you have to do because no readers, no subscriptions, no revenue. Um, whereas if you work for an established publication, whether it's the New York Times or the American Lawyer, what have you, that publication is handling all of that. They're handling the so-called audience development. They're getting the readers, the advertisers, the subscribers. You're just working for them and you don't have to worry about that. Sure. Do you want to develop your personal brand? You know, sure. Um, but it's not the same. Whereas here, it really is all you. It really is all your personal brand. So I spend a lot of time hawking my wares, basically. Yeah. So so how do you, I mean, how, so you, you're not chasing ads in the way you were before, but you are chasing readers and, I, you know, chasing yeah. them not just through the quality of your writing, but but having to get the word out there. Uh, it's probably why you're yep. appearing here on this podcast yes. right now. Uh, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but so how does that, how does that differ from you? Does it still feel like you're, you're freer to write differently or do something different with what you're writing about? Yes, I feel that my ultimate allegiance is to the readers. So I don't really worry about, uh, say, taking off Thomson Reuters or something because Westlaw is a huge advertiser or something. Yeah. Not that I, you know, not that I would really do that, but you know, it's just it's it's not. I'm not worried about ticking off advertisers or making some firm mad or, or anything like that. I'm just worried about keeping the readers uh, engaged. Um, but it's hard in a way. You have to win over the readers one at a time. And, you know, it's a little awkward. I know a lot of people. I have many friends in the profession. Essentially, you're kind of asking them, hey, pay me $5 to read what you were getting for free for 17 years at Underneath Their Robes and Above the Law. So I am a little bit shy about it in some ways. I've had to just get over that. Yeah. And 
I kind of say, well, is it any worse than if I had a daughter and I was saying, please buy her Girl Scout cookies? Like, right. eh, not, not less, less fattening. I mean, it's, you know, it's just, this is just how things work. But if I'm going to make a living doing this, I, I kind of have to do this. So that's yeah. the, that's the trade-off. And again, I, I don't mind. I enjoy coming on podcasts. I enjoy being on Twitter and Facebook and LinkedIn. Uh, so I don't mind it, but it's not for everybody. People who just want to write and don't want to promote would hate this platform. Yeah, well, it's funny that we are living at a time in which writers feel guilty asking to be paid for their writing. Uh... <laughs> no, it's this is what it's come to. I mean, just the genesis of writing on the web. It, we started off giving it away for free, and I think it caused both readers and ourselves to to not value yeah. it. Like you know, people like you and I, we spend a lot of our we spend our time, our, our careers, getting this content for people and. To be in a position where we can comment knowledgeably, we acquired law degrees and we worked and we did all of these things. And then we feel bad about giving it away for free. But, you know, that's it's just because of the genesis of how the Internet arose and how digital media arose. If it come out in a different way, maybe we wouldn't feel so bad. Yeah, no, I, I, I can sympathize with a lot of what you're saying, because I certainly, you know, I've been blogging for was it 18 years, something like that now. And certainly in the <laughs> earlier days, it was entirely about. The writing it was writing about what interested me at any given moment, what I felt like writing about. And then over time, as my blog has become more popular, I felt more pressure to write about the stuff I feel like I should be writing about or the stuff I feel like uh, is going to continue to drive readers or drive traffic to my blog. And it's not so much, I have advertising, it's not so much about kowtowing to the advertisers as it is keeping it always having in the back of my mind, I, I need to keep my traffic up. I need to keep readers up. And, and I just don't want to lose that. And, and that starts to influence in some ways what you write about. And it's, it starts to make it more like a job in a way, you know, I, I mean, I love what I do. I love yeah. writing, but it totally changes the the nature of it. I do agree. But you know, in some ways I think it's kind of a good problem yeah, to have. Exactly. Like, it so is. take you Bob, like good in problem, some ways yeah. you are sort of like, the outlet of record for the legal technology world. And now, because you have this readership and this reputation, it's kind of your responsibility to cover anything of significance in that world. Not that you have to cover every little thing and some things don't rise yeah. to the level of, you know, being worth covering. But, you know, you have that audience and that, and you know, what is like that quote from, I don't know, Spider-Man or Superman or whatever, with great power comes great responsibility. <laughs> and not that exactly as we legal bloggers have this like great power, but... People are expecting us, if there's something big in our niches, if there's something big in legal tech, if there's something big in the law firm world or the Supreme Court, they look to mm -hmm. us for what our take is on it. And I view that as very flattering. It's like, you know, they want to hear what we have to say. When I was a junior associate, I don't really know that many people wanted to hear what I had to say. Yeah. Yeah, no, it, it it's I, I have I have no complaints. I love what I do, but it's the, but the monetizing it make you know it's always been almost like a sideline, even though I spent a lot of time on it because I have to do other things to make money so I can afford to yes. do my sideline. It's never been something where no. I've made you know sort of enough to quit my day job. Although it's getting closer, uh, but uh, yep, yep. <laughs> but I you know I think about stuff. I've thought I've given it some thought just just for it would that be a great reason. Fit for you. Well, I don't know. It's it's it, you know <laughs> the the readership is is somewhat different, but. You know, I wonder, do you find that you write differently for Substack? Not not in terms of you're not kowtowing to advertisers and all that, but do you find that how you construct a post is different for Substack than it would be if you're writing for a blog? You know, not really, actually, come to think of it. In some ways, when I'm looking at that blank screen, the interface is a little different. It's Substack's own platform. It's not WordPress or TypePad or whoever I used over the years, but it very much feels like the the old way of doing things. 
uh, I mean, one thing that's a little bit different is my audience is smaller. Uh, so in some ways I can sometimes assume, okay, they'll know what this is a reference to, or they'll remember that I wrote about this before or something like that. But again, I'm also trying to win new readers. So I can't be too obscure because again, a lot of the stuff does go up publicly. The way you can do it is you essentially click a button saying, I want this to either be available to everyone or only paid subscribers. And so it's kind of a freemium model, a mix of free and premium. There's stuff on the website version of Substack that it's available to all. And there's stuff that is available only to paid subscribers if they log in. And then similarly with the emails or the newsletters, the paid subscribers get everything. And the free subscribers, because you can subscribe to the newsletter for free, get some of the posts, but not all of the posts. But in answer to your question, no, not really. I feel it's actually pretty similar to the early days of blogging. Yeah. Does does the fact that that readers are having to subscribe mean that you have a better sense, not just of the numbers of readers you have, but of who your readers are? Yes. Like basically, I, you know, I see their emails. They don't have to provide a name. So I guess if they said, you know, you know, John Smith at Yahoo, I, I wouldn't know. But a lot of times you can tell. And so I can skim through my reader list and I'll say, oh, it's that person and that person and that yeah. person. And if so they're paying subscribers, out there. Yeah. yes, oh, definitely. Yeah. Um, and then when they're paying subscribers, I, you know, I see their name from the credit card. So I, I, I do know uh, who the readers are. So that, that's been interesting. I mean, look, right now I have 4,000 total readers, which is both the paid and the free. And then of those 4,000, about a little over 900 are paying. Um, so it's still early. I've only been doing this for less than a month. And, you know, you could do the math, $5 a month, 900 people. That's not really enough yet. And you're giving up 15% to Substack and Stripe. It's not really yet enough to make a living. But I've only been doing this for a month. And I'm hoping that I'm going to grow the 4,000 and the 900. And so, uh, and look, one of the challenges is a lot of the growth is front loaded. Like this will probably be my best month ever in the sense that, you know, people have been reading me a long time, um, you know, whatever, my mom. I mean, everyone who knows me is going to subscribe probably in the first month or two. Right. Uh, and then, you know, it's going to slow down after that. So I'm not expecting to get 4,000 to 900 like every month for the next year. That would be awesome if I did. It's going to be slower. But, you know, it'll be something. Yeah. Um, and, you know, um, at a certain point, I think it will be viable, yeah. hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious about that because because you do lack that virality that can sometimes drive readership to your blog. Uh, and certainly one of the things, you know, I every so often rely on is, I mean, you, you, in the old days, it used to be, wow, above the law, picked up a story I did, I, you know, I've made it uh, because then I, suddenly I would get like thousands of hits to that story that day. And and there's still that, you know, there's still the, those stories you, you write sometimes that just kill it and, and you just get thousands and thousands and thousands of hits to that story. And that, that really drives up your numbers. Have, have you thought more about that, the sort of the marketing side. I know we've talked about this earlier and not to repeat yourself, but how do you kind of replace that virality in terms of building an audience? How, what are your think, what's your thinking about that? Yeah. So you can still do that. So for example, I think my most well-read post on original jurisdiction was a post I did about the Federalist Society and where this organization of conservative and libertarian uh, lawyers goes after the January 6th events and Donald Trump. And that post did go viral. It went all over Twitter. It got picked up by uh, Chris Hayes' show on MSNBC. It got emailed around a lot. And so that was my biggest post. And after that post went up, uh, when I look at my little traffic graph, there's this little spike from that post. Uh, and there are little spikes like that along the way. Uh, 
I did a post about Amy Chua, the controversial Yale Law School professor, and that was another little spike. So you do try to, you kind of have to have a mix of stuff. You need to have stuff that your audience, your sort of core audience will appreciate. And then you need to have stuff that's going to bring in the new people. So I probably need to work a little bit more on the stuff that will bring in the new people. And I have some ideas for things that I think are going to be uh, exciting. Um, but, you know, those things often take time. The Federalist Society post, that was a reported post. I had to interview a bunch of people and really had to work on it. It was fairly long. Um, whereas there's other stuff that I can dash off just like a traditional above the law post, you know, in the course of an hour or two. Um, so you kind of have to have a balance. Yeah. Probably didn't hurt also when you got to mention in the New York Times for the launch of the newsletter. Oh, yeah. No, no, that was great. Like all of, you know, and you mentioned me, like everything helps. Like I look at my, one thing that Substack is good about is they give you a little table where it shows where do you get the most traffic from in terms of visits to the website version of your um, Substack. And then also where do you get the most paid signups? So I can actually see that. Um, interestingly enough for me, the top source of both traffic and subscriptions has actually been Twitter. Sure. Um, that's been actually my, my big one. Um, and then, you know, like LinkedIn is up there. Um, but, you know, I, I really, like I said, I try to win over the readers one at a time. Yeah. So, you know, every little bit counts. Yeah. Can we just kind of step back and, and talk about uh, how, how did you get started with blogging way, way back when? What, why, why did you start a blog? What did you want to do with it? Uh, was it just for fun or? It really was. It was just kind of a lark, I think, is how I often put it. I was I was working as an assistant U.S. attorney in New Jersey, and I liked my day job, but there was a part of it that felt a little constricting. Um, like I, I had these sort of random funny observations, and they really there was really no place to put them. They weren't going to go into an appellate brief. And so I sort of started this blog about uh, federal judges with whom I was and still am kind of obsessed. And uh, it just kind of took off from there. So I think like a lot of bloggers, I just started it because there were things that interested me that I wanted to comment, much as what you were just saying earlier. It was, it was really back then a labor of love. And like a lot of bloggers, I had a day job. Uh, I was working as a lawyer. And so uh, I didn't really have to worry about making ends meet from it. Much like a lot of the law bloggers today, they are practicing lawyers. A lot of the lawyers who um, have blogs with Lex blog or just successful practicing lawyers who are using the blog for business development. A lot of the top legal bloggers are law professors. So they're not really doing it to make a living. Um, Substack's a little bit different for me in the sense that that, that is what I'm doing. But you know, it's but it's totally fine. I, I like doing it. You, you had a day job, but a day job in which it couldn't be known that you were writing this blog in the evening. So yes, you were anonymous. Which is why I Exactly. <laughs> until until you were, I guess, I say you were outed by Jeffrey Tubin, uh, who now has his own uh, sort of uh, COVID fame, I guess, pandemic fame. But you weren't really outed. I mean, you you agreed to speak to him. I cooperated. About it. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. That's yeah. right. And and uh, from there, there are a couple steps to uh, above the law. And how did you get started with above the law? How did that get going? Yeah, so I the first job I took after leaving the U.S. Attorney's Office was I worked at a political blog called Wonkette, and I was hooked up with them through actually a law school classmate of mine who had a college friend uh, from who, who was working for another site in that same network, Gawker Media, which no longer exists, also for something law-related. Right. They got sued into oblivion. Uh, but anyway, right. uh, I worked there for a couple of months, and I discovered I liked blogging. I liked doing it for a living, but... I was honestly a little out of my depth in terms of politics. There were people who knew politics as obsessively as I knew the legal world. So that's when I came up with the idea for Above the Law. 
But at the time, there was no Substack or Substack equivalent. Um, I should mention there are other companies that do what Substack mm -hmm. does, like Ghost and Review, et cetera. I think you might have mentioned some of them in your piece. But uh, there was no Substack like that. There was really no easy way to monetize that. So I connected with an established media, media company, a company now known as Breaking Media, which already had a somewhat successful Wall Street site called Dealbreaker, and they were wanting to launch other sites in different professional verticals. And I pitched them on the idea of Above the Law. And so that's the genesis of Above the Law. I launched it on behalf of Breaking Media. And, you know, it worked out very well in many ways. Like it, it grew. Uh, I, you know, I was able to, I had a stable income because I was getting, you know, paid by Breaking Media. Like it was, it was, there was a way of sort of minimizing my risk. Um, but, you know, on the other hand, I didn't, you know, sort of own and control the whole thing. And what sort of happened, I think, at Above the Law is the site grew and, and thrived is I started to feel you know, it was it was a much larger enterprise than just me. Yeah. And that comes with both benefits and burdens. Right. And, you know, I what I like about original jurisdiction is once again, just like it underneath their robes, I write every word I'm in total control. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, a little side note on the Gawker thing is the the, the editor who wrote that uh, Hulk Hogan, uh, who ran that Hulk Hogan uh, sex video, which kind of led to their uh, their demise. So got to start in journalism working for me. So uh, Oh, really? I guess I didn't teach him very well. He worked at ALM. You mean AJ? AJ. He worked at ALM. He was an editor at ALM. serious? I didn't know that AJ worked at ALM. That's so funny. Wow. It's so funny because, you know, ALM has like so many August alums who've like gone into all these other things, but I didn't know AJ was also. He was there briefly. He was only there probably a year or so, but we had started a national kind of a news service uh, at the ALM. And he was one of the editors working on that news service oh my gosh, out of our so Manhattan funny. office wow. uh, back in the day. Huh. Uh, yeah, wow. that's, that's funny. So um, given all your experience over the years in blogging and, and now your uh, transition to this format that's part blogging, part newsletter, uh, what lessons have you brought with you? What have you learned about blogging that have proved to be useful to you in creating this new publication? Well, I think that at the end of the day, it's really something that goes back to what I was doing it underneath their robes. It's really about what's the term that everyone in media likes to use differentiated content, like content that people can't really get elsewhere. Because if I'm going to ask people, to pay five bucks a month or whatever it is for my writing, I have to be giving them stuff they can't get elsewhere. If it's just the nth take on the Supreme Court's ruling in Fulton or something, well, they can get lots of free takes from people who are law professors and distinguished litigators and all of that. I have to give them stuff they can't get elsewhere. So um, kind of like you know, with you and legal technology, I just find these little niches. Like I cover Supreme Court law clerk hiring. I cover a lot of business of law stuff. Uh, I cover... Uh, you know, other things like Bristow fellow hiring and Scadden fellow hiring and a lot of a lot of inside baseball stuff. Um, I have a new feature I'm launching today where I look at different law related books, like a sort of a monthly or every other month roundup of notable books in the law space, which I don't really think anyone else does. Um, so I'm trying to come up with things that are a little different and unique, because if I'm just going to be the nth person to weigh in on a big Supreme Court decision, there are other places where people can get that. Yeah. I wonder what you think about uh, a number of the people that I've had on this podcast who talk about blogging, especially lawyers who've been blogging for a very long time, uh, talk about uh, the importance of feeling 
the word they keep using is passionate about what they're writing about. I wonder what you think about that. How important is that to you? Oh, it's really important. I think it's what it's kind of what why you get into this in the first place, really. And you know, I should say passionate doesn't necessarily mean necessarily having an agenda. Um, I'm not terribly ideological in my own writing. Uh, And in fact, one of the issues I started to have with some of legal blogging, uh, you know, to be honest, including Summit Above the Law, was I felt that it was a little too ideological for my tastes. And so passion doesn't necessarily mean, oh, I have this agenda to drive, but it means I'm really excited, just like you might be excited for some wonky upgrade to an existing legal tech product. Like you're passionate about it. It doesn't mean that, oh, you hate Donald Trump or whatever it is, Um, but it means, you know, you're excited about it. And that's what I bring um, now to the table that I, that I think I've always brought. I'm really excited about the stuff I write about. Yeah. So if, if a, a lawyer or really anybody, but let's, let's stick with lawyers since that's our, our audience or our legal professionals uh, were to come to you now and say, um, I'm really interested in what you are doing. I'm also really interested in what Lex blog is doing and, and, and the sort of the traditional blogging model. How should I decide? What factors should I think about in trying to decide? Should I do Substack? Should I do a regular blog? Should I not do any yep. of the above? Yep. Yeah, it's funny. You and Kevin O'Keefe of Lex Blog and I had an interesting discussion on Twitter about this. It really depends on what your goals are. If you're a practicing lawyer who is looking to develop your business, or if you're a law professor who's looking to increase your profile in a particular area, then I think you might want to just go with a traditional blog. You're not really trying to monetize it, or you're monetizing it, I should say, through other things. You are being a thought leader, as they say, in the space helps get you legal clients, or it helps get you consulting clients, or it helps get you other writing and speaking gigs. If you're looking to actually monetize it by the actual writing, then I think Substack or Ghost or Review or these other platforms would really work. I do think that for most lawyer bloggers, they're probably not trying to do what I'm trying to do. I think most are in the other camp. And so again, to like, you know, give a plug to Lexblog, I think it's really great for them to connect with Lexblog or a similar platform or company. Um, But again, if you want to make a living doing what I'm doing, like you can definitely do it. What I would advise is, and this is maybe against my interest in terms of like having more competition, but I would say get in soon because I think the other lesson I would take away from my career is as a blogger is I don't think I'm necessarily the best writer or the best thinker. I've just been early to the party a lot. And I feel like, as you mentioned in your Substack Lawyers piece, I think I'm one of the first U.S. lawyers, prominent U.S. lawyers who's on Substack. And you're not going to have people endlessly play, paying $5 a month for you know 20 writers. They're going to pick a few. And sometimes they just pick whoever's there already. So I think, you know, move soon if you want to, if you want to get on this gold rush, because I don't know how much longer it's going to last. Yeah, right. Or if it's a gold rush. Yeah, or <laughs> if it's a gold rush, right. It's not a gold rush yet. <laughs> well, it is for some and 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 not for others. Yeah, yeah, and that, that's, that's going to be true of any publishing platform. I mean, to me, it's really interesting because, you know, I, I would have a couple of years ago uh, declared... Uh, e-newsletters of any kind dead because we were all complaining about the fact that our, our inboxes were getting overwhelmed by way too many emails. Yeah. Uh, but it's interesting to hear how you talk about it as really a blog with a newsletter attached to it. And and that's really true for yeah. what I do. I mean, I send out a newsletter every day for my blog as well. Uh, I don't get the number of readers on my newsletter that I get on my blog, but you know that's because I don't push it. And, and maybe if I pushed it, I would. So uh, it's really interesting. Uh, any other thoughts or advice uh, on on uh, publishing in general or starting a blog or starting a news a Substack uh, before we wrap up? Yeah, you know, it is. I agree with you that that is the challenge. I mean, but it's been the challenge for a long time yeah. competing 
for eyeballs. And, you know, in terms of my own media consumption, I think I used to kind of get like stressed out, like, oh, there's all this stuff I'm not reading. And you know what? I just relax now. Like I, you know, sometimes they accumulate in my inbox and sometimes I, if I'm not, not busy, I read a lot. Other times I fall behind, but then I'll just kind of skim the subject lines and whatever sounds interesting, I'll go back and read, even if it's from a few weeks ago and whatever's not, I'll just archive and mark as read. So like, you don't have to stress about it. Just, you know, subscribe to a bunch of things. And if you don't get to them, you don't get to them. That's fine. Um, but, um, you know, it's just, there's a lot of great content out there and uh, not everyone's going to read everything and that's okay. Sounds good. Well, David, thank you so much. It's great to see you. It's great to see you looking well and happy. And uh, I'm glad you're enjoying what you're doing. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, thanks for having me, Bob. And I look forward to seeing you around the, the blogosphere and uh, Twitter. And the uh, substackosphere, whatever it's called. <laughs> exactly, whatever you'd call it. <laughs> uh, thanks again to, to David Latt for joining us. Uh, you can find his Substack at, is it at davidlatt.substack.com? Yeah, davidlatt.substack.com. And once again, this was episode 42 of This Week in Legal Blogging. If you haven't yet, be sure to peruse our full library of shows wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, drop us a quick rating or review. We appreciate it very much. Last but not least, head over to lexblog.com slash twilb. That's T-W-I-L-B for This Week in Legal Blogging for outlines of each and every show. On behalf of myself and everybody at Lexblog, thanks for listening.